Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to Graceland this morning. So thankful to have you here. Welcome all of our guests. Hopefully you felt welcome this morning as you came in. And uh, we're so thankful that you came here today. And, um, uh, you know, just a few days ago, hunting season came to a close in regards to turkey season. Any, any turkey hunters I got out here today? Uh, yeah, so many of our church certainly like to turkey hunt. I was excited when a friend of mine invited me to turkey hunt. So we go out to the blind and we're sitting there and we both see the turkey and we both raise our guns. Boom, we shoot at the same time. Down goes the turkey. I said, well, I got that turkey. My buddy goes, no, no, I got that turkey. And I said, no, 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 I got that turkey. And my buddy goes, no, I got that turkey. So we're out there arguing back and forth, looking at the turkey, and then a game warden comes up behind us. And the game warden comes out, and uh, he, I said, well, hey, will you help settle this, this situation? The game warden goes up and, and looks at the turkey, examines it, and looks back at us. Is either of you a preacher? I said, well, actually, I am. And he said, well, the bullet in, went in one ear and out the other. So <laughs> turkey's yours. So... So, you know, I'm hoping that's, this, that's not what's going to happen in this sermon today. Um, but, you know, on this day, we look back. 1941, December the 7th, there was a, an, a certain attack. The Japanese planes, 353 of them would attack unexpectedly Hawaii. There at Pearl Harbor, battleships were fallen. In fact, the USS Arizona was never to be recovered. When all was said and done, 2,403 soldiers were killed. President Franklin Roosevelt, he said, this will be a date that will live in infamy. And while our nation was shocked, it certainly did change our outlook. We had a population back then of 131 million people. Many men and women would go in battle for our freedom, 420,000 would pass away during World War II. Our nation was never the same again. And on this Memorial Day, it's a moment for us to remember our fallen heroes. So we remember those fallen heroes, but then also we remember the family members who survived those who fell for freedom. So uh, if this morning, if there are any family members who are surviving those who gave their life, would you please stand so we can say Thank you. Anybody? All right. We want to say thank you. Thank you, and we remember. Well, open your Bible to Genesis chapter 39 this morning. And as you're opening your Bibles this morning, uh, I want you to think back on that surprise attack in Pearl Harbor. I want you to think back upon it. It took them by surprise. It was unexpectedly. And if anyone knows how it feels to be unexpectedly attacked... It was our man, Joseph. Now, I don't want to make light of the Pearl Harbor attack. That's not my purpose here. But even though Joseph lived 3,600 years ago, even though he lived 1,600 years before Jesus Christ, our man, Joseph, felt unexpectedly attacked. We're going to see three scenes of Genesis chapter 39 this morning. And before we jump into scene one, I'd like for us to pray. Would you bow your head and pray with me? God, thank you so much for the words we're about to read. We know that they were set in place long ago from you to change our hearts even today. We want to lift up all the hearts that are hurting. We want to lift up all the hearts here that, Lord, need to hear these words. We want to lift up those in Noblesville, Indiana, and all those impacted there as well. Thank you so much, Lord, for your spirit. 
and what you're about to do. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, scene one, Joseph in Egypt. Joseph in Egypt. How did Joseph get to Egypt? Well, let's rewind real quickly. Genesis chapter 37, there we learn he's thrown into a pit. Then his oldest brother, Reuben, rescues him from the pit, turns around, sells him to a bunch of sojourners called the Midianites. They travel all the way to Egypt. And there Joseph is put on the auctioning block as a slave. There's a Hebrew set in place to be a slave. And that's where we pick up in verse one. Read with me. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials. Now, just stop there for a moment. Uh, Potiphar, that name, it actually means raw raised up. And so what we gather is that Potiphar is the chief police, if you will, of the Egyptian army. And he's one of the most powerful men in Egypt at the time. There Joseph is. Verse 2, look at it with me. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So there you have Joseph. He's a slave. He's in a new land. He's learning a new language. He's eating new food. He's learning a new dialect. Everything is new. He's away from his family. He's encountering a storm, and the storm's name is Egypt. But then we read about this turnaround in the life of Joseph, don't we? Verse 3 gives us this indication of what happens when we begin to see this turnaround. Underline the phrase, the Lord was with him. Now, this is a key phrase in Joseph's life, a key phrase in the narrative of Scripture, a key phrase for our life today as a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're making observations in these Verses in chapter 39, what you're going to learn is, is that the name Lord appears eight times in this chapter. Two, uh, one in verse 2, two in, ver, in verse 3, two in verse 5, and two in verse 23. It's fascinating, too, to make uh, reference to the, the word Lord is only used 11 times in the rest of Genesis. Now, why do I say that? Well, well it's pertinent because at the most uncertain moment of Joseph's life, at the most pivotal moment with an uncertain future for Joseph ahead. When everything is up in the air, Joseph is and feels like he's completely alone. But is he alone? No, God is with Joseph. God is always with Joseph. He never leaves. He was with Joseph when his brothers were trying to figure out what to do with him. He was with Joseph when he was in the pit. He was with Joseph when he sold into slavery. He was just with Joseph the same amount of time in the pit as he was in prison. And later on, we're going to find as in the palace. God is with Joseph. Maybe you're in your own Egypt today. Maybe you find yourself 
in your own form, struggling with maybe a a death in the family or a friend, or maybe you're struggling with a, a disease or an illness or a relationship breakup or a money situation or expectations haven't been lived up to, or maybe there's a a family situation that seems like there's no hope, or maybe your friends have just walked away from you, or you're living in your own Egypt, you don't know what to do. Alone you feel. There's a family that I want to share with you that certainly did understand what it felt like to live in Egypt. Their names were the Jaspers. Jaspers had several children, the all-American-looking family, if you will. Three girls, one boy. The boy's name's Cooper. He's five years of age, and his dad, JJ, takes Cooper in their dune buggy out for a spin. They've done it 500 other times. There's a roll cage over them. They're, they're properly uh, buckled in tightly. On their ride on a dune buggy, one fateful day, unexpectedly, the dune buggy begins to roll. And as it begins to roll... Cooper would lose his life. And J.J. would have to call his wife running errands saying, you better get home. There's been an accident. Cooper hasn't made it. At the funeral, the family would tell another friend, and I quote, now we know what the bottom looks like. Joseph certainly knew what the bottom looked like. Maybe you know what the bottom looks like. I want you to hear something. God is with you. Not only was God with Joseph, God is with you. And you cannot go anywhere without him. David would say, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? God was with David. God was with Joseph. God is with you. And I love what Max Lucado does here. He says, if, if Joseph could rewrite the words of David, he would say, God was with me in the pit. God was with me on the way to Egypt. God is with me as a slave. God is with me in the palace. God is with me. Maybe you could rewrite the words of David. God is with me at the hospital waiting for the results. God is with me as I visit the cemetery of the one I love. God is with me at the unemployment office. God is with me when I don't have any friends at school. God is with me in my job when I'm underperforming. God is with me. I want you to think about your schedule this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow, the next day. No matter what's on your calendar, God's with you. But too often the case in our own Egypt... We don't acknowledge he's with us. We get in a hurry. We get panicked. We try to do it ourselves. Here you have the author of Genesis underscoring this. Moses, he was quoted in saying, don't take your spirit from me. Moses knew and, and Joseph knew and David knew. You need God's presence. You need him. And here's why. Because the world needs to see somebody demonstrating God. Here's what we've learned about Potiphar. As we read those few verses, he's got many slaves. He's very powerful. He's very influential. He's got many, many slaves. But there's only one slave that makes him pick up his head and turns his head towards Joseph and goes, okay, there's something different about that guy. God is asking and calling out for us to be head-turning type of believers. And the question is, will you be that person? You need God's presence so that you can turn heads no matter what you're going through in your Egypt. 
Now, you may be thinking, I'm not Joseph. There's no way. Well, keep in mind, there was nothing special about Joseph. Scripture makes it very clear. It was God who did the work. So what does that leave for Joseph to do? Well, here's what it leaves for Joseph to do. He makes God's presence his priority. He makes pursuing God's presence his greatest priority in his life. He does it. David does it. Moses does it. The Apostle Paul does it. The Apostle Paul said it this way, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul strived for God's presence. So will you strive? I want to encourage you with this. Make God's presence your priority. Will you make it your priority in the morning when you get up? When all the other things are coming at you, will you get up and will you make his presence your number one priority through the scripture and through prayer and meditation and the disciplines? Will you make his presence your priority throughout your day? And then as you settle in for the evening, instead of binging on a Netflix show like so often we like to do, would you make his presence your priority? Would you make his presence your priority? Because here's the deal. If you don't do that, I'll tell you what, you're going to make other things your priority. Because there's going to be all kinds of things coming at you. If you don't tell your calendar and your day where to go, the world will gladly do it for you. And that brings us to scene number two. It's Joseph and the bait. Now this section, I want you to know, it sets up well. And the reason why is because of what we're going to read next. In Genesis chapter 39, uh, verse 6b, it says this. Now Joseph was hand, handsome in form and appearance. Now the Bible doesn't rarely give physical appearance descriptions, but here you can tell he's got rock solid abs. He's got he's barrel chested. He's got python biceps. I mean, basically it looks like your pastor. Okay. <laughs> Everyone laughed in the first service too. So I've tried to not take that personally. Verse 7, let's continue. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. He told her, hey, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. I want you to meet Mrs. Potiphar. She catches... Joseph in her eyes. He's a handsome of a Hebrew hunk. And he starts to, she starts to pursue him. And we know Moses uses the same exact Hebrew language for Joseph as he does Joseph's mom, Rachel, if you want to do a study about that. They were both handsome in face and godly in appearance. Mrs. Potiphar takes notice and so she does her very best, man. She starts wearing her tightest pants and her highest heels and the most revealing shirt she has. And she tries to put on her best walk like an Egyptian. 1980s music reference for all you people out there that love the 80s music like I do. If you knew anything about this culture, Mrs. Potiphar was powerful. She was probably, most historians and scholars think, absolutely striking. Maybe the most beautiful woman 
in Egypt. So you can picture her in her palace of her own. She's got slaves to do all the work, including Joseph. And she's sitting there in her, as, as the sun comes up and she's reading the newspaper. And she turns to the glamour section, which she's constantly in because the paparazzi are all around her. And she's voted once again. Maybe she's voted once again to be best dressed in Egypt. Maybe she's not voted best dressed to be in Egypt. Or maybe, maybe she's worse dressed in Egypt. But my suspicion is she's voted least dressed in Egypt. She goes to the mall. Everyone thinks she's attractive. All the women go, man, I want to be like Mrs. Potiphar. But what, what do, we don't, they don't know is that she's empty. She's got all these things and she's empty. She's throwing herself at another Hebrew slave. I mean, maybe this wasn't the first time this happened. Out of her emptiness, she comes on to Joseph and says, well, come to bed with me. In the Hebrew language, literally it says, sex now. It's pretty straightforward. Now, he, Joseph, if there was ever a time, it would have been this moment. What does he do? Does he consent? I mean, he grew up in a dysfunctional family. He came from a long line of sexual immorality. I mean, it was a dysfunctional family. He had, there was, there was one husband and four wives, all fathering different children. I mean, there's all kinds of things in his past. He was betrayed by his own brothers. And here you have this beautiful cougar going after you. He's sold into slavery, and now it's a great opportunity to build alliance with a powerful woman. His, his family would have never known. He's all alone. Never, no one would have ever known. It was a good way for him to find release. He's full of hormones. He's young at the pinnacle of his life. Does he take the bait? No. Does she give up? No. Temptation never does. You say once, no to it, it's going to keep following you, maybe even a little harder. She keeps following him, and the Scripture says day after day she follows him. Finally, she's so aggressive, she lunges at him, grabs his shirt, it tears off, he runs away, and she's left. And what we read later on, we're going to learn, is that what does Joseph get out of the deal? The dungeon. He gets the dungeon. What I want you to learn from this is that Joseph has an opportunity. He has an opportunity for one specific thing, that he can either choose his principles here. Or he can choose pragmatics. the situation that he was in, how his life was playing out, or the principles that were governing his life. And what does he choose? He chooses his principles. It's what kept him on the straight and narrow. It's what kept him strong to the core. It's what kept him following after God, his principles over his pragmatics. So often the case we want to acquiesce to our pragmatics and give up on our principles. It's what keeps us moving forward. Joseph kept moving forward and pursuing God. And in the process, he said, well, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? He operated on this principle regardless of the consequence, the dungeon for him. Will you be the same? Will your principles be your guiding light? Look, I don't want you to operate in fear, but I want to say this in love. What you do impacts your life. 
Maybe you're young. You're like, oh, if I do that, it's no big deal. I'll recover. Everything impacts your life. Certainly would Joseph. We come to scene three, Joseph in the dungeon. Verse 13, and follow, look at it with me. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her husband. Her, I'm sorry, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of. She's trying to build allies here. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him out and put him in prison. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything he did. So Joseph goes from running the house to being run out of the house. Mrs. Potiphar has her speech ready. She has the evidence beside her. She says, that Hebrew slave, she, she plays the race card now. She blames it on him. You brought him here to make sport of me. Potiphar's angry, throws him into the dungeon. Now, I want you to picture Joseph now in the dungeon. Have you ever been in a dungeon before? Maybe you've been to Europe, the, some of those dungeons. I've been in a dungeon before. There's not a lot of air it's creepy. There in the dungeon, Joseph is, and you can hear the clanging of chains. We know this because that's how they would hold prisoners. They would actually, they would uh, connect the chains to the ceiling, hang the chains down, and then the chains would grasp around their neck, and there they would cling back and forth all day long. We know this. Psalm 105.18 actually explains Joseph's plight. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. Picture Joseph here. He's constrained. So what do you do when the wheels fall off? What do you do when everything seems to be coming apart? When do you, what do you do when the wheels are nowhere to be found in the dungeon? Joseph's a great testimony of the fact that life's not, uh, life's not always bright and shiny and smiley, is it? But here's what I want you to know, friend. God is working just as much in success as he is in your sadness. He's working. Nothing catches him surprised by surprise. You see, Joseph, he didn't merit the chains. He also didn't merit the success. God has enabled the success just like God has enabled our salvation, we didn't deserve anything more than the chains of sin. But by his son's sacrifice, we are offered salvation. And look, this is a big deal because when you claim Romans 8.28 as a principle, you put it on your fridge, it doesn't mean that you put it on your fridge, Romans 8.28, and everything's going to be golden. What it means is, is that God's working for his own glory. 
And it's going to change your attitude. It's going to change your outlook, everything. Why? Because God's working. Even when things aren't so shiny. And then we can pray like John Wesley played. He said, commit thy ways to him, thy works into his hands, and rest on his unchanging word, who heaven and earth commands. Through waves and clouds and storms, his power will clear thy way. Wait thou, his time and darkest night shall end in brightest day. Leave to his sovereign sway to choose and to command, so shalt thou wandering own his way. How wise, how strong his hand. I've been there in the hospital room and prayed with people who knew that I knew that they may never leave the hospital room unless God miraculously healed them. They would never leave alive. And they say, Pastor, would you pray with me? Pastor, would you read scripture to me? Would you do this with alongside of me? And they know that God is working, but they know that things aren't golden. They know that God's working, and they are trusting in that. How would your outlook and attitude change if you believed that God was truly at work in your life right now? If you truly believed it, you just didn't say it, you just didn't read it, you didn't, but you believed it. How would your attitude change? How would your outlook change? Would you be a head-turner believer on mission to glorify God? I want you to see, as we come to the close of Genesis chapter 39, the, the, the symmetry of this chapter. It's so quite fascinating for me. Uh, as you can see here, we're going to put it on the screen. Genesis chapter 39, verses 2 through 6. And then Genesis chapter 39, 21 through 23, there's symmetry. In the early part, you see the Lord was with Joseph. And then later it says the Lord was with Joseph. In the earlier part, that Joseph found favor in the sight of Potiphar, and then later on we read Joseph found favor in the sight of the prison warden. Then again, in the earlier parts, Potiphar put Joseph in charge of everything, and the warden later on put Joseph in charge of everything. The Lord blessed Joseph, and we see it again. And that symmetry reminds us that God's in control. He's on the throne. There's nothing that surprises him. And as we close this chapter out, it points us to something. It doesn't point us to Joseph and his good looks and how to run from a cougar and how to become the vice president of a nation. That's not what this whole chapter is about here. What the chapter is, as it closes down, is that it points to Jesus. You see, just like God is in control at that moment, Jesus is there on the cross and God is in control at that moment, holding his son there for the sins of humanity. And just like Joseph, God has his life. And just like your life, God has yours. And I want you to know, friend, that Joseph teaches us, regardless of where we are, whether the pit or the palace, whether unexpectedly surprised or basking in the glow of a mountaintop experience. That the God, the Yahweh of Joseph is your Yahweh. And he's always with you. And his presence is here in this place for you.